Friends, this morning I'd like to draw your attention to Mark chapter 11, verses 27 to 36. Mark 11, verses 27 to 36. That's our sermon text this morning. So I'll begin by reading and then praying for the Lord's blessing. And then we'll go from there. We're in the Gospel of Mark, of course, moving through this account of Jesus' life. The they that we'll see at the beginning of our passage is Jesus and his 12 disciples who traveled to Jerusalem with him. Let's hear the word of the Lord. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's pray. Our triune God, whose words we hear on the pages of Scripture, we plead with you for help to understand them. And not only to understand intellectually, but for our hearts to grab hold of your revelation of yourself in Jesus Christ here. We pray that we would be soft to the work that you mean to do in us, that we would be alert in our attention, that we would be ready to be searched and worked on by your word, and that we would be ready to behold the glory of Jesus Christ as your glory shines in his face. Please cause us to see him and cause us to adore him, and you the triune God through Jesus Christ. We pray that you'd give me clarity and faithfulness to your word. Do the things among us you see need to be done to shepherd our souls into the likeness of Christ. Do far more abundantly than we could even think to ask you. For your glory in your church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a now famous quote that came from British Prime Minister Winston Churchill during the Second World War. In wartime... Truth is so precious that she should always be attended by a bodyguard of lies. Now, of course, he was talking about the complex web of intelligence and counterintelligence and subterfuge and propaganda that arises amid the life or death struggle of wartime. Of course, in war, not everyone who seeks information about you is doing so with friendly motives. To the contrary, it can pose a grave danger for others to know too much about you in that context. And so Churchill is painting a verbal picture of the truth, this vulnerable, precious truth, intentionally hedged in by a defensive barrier of lies that prevent the enemy from peering inside. Now when we look at Jesus in today's passage, we're going to see that what he does partially overlaps, but of course partially critiques Churchill's adage. 
What Jesus affirms is that certain people seeking knowledge are not doing so in good faith and that it's appropriate to withhold the truth from them, especially when they mean to use it for harm. But Jesus is entirely without sin. He's not only man, but he is the God who never lies. And so he guards the truth from the wicked, not by a bodyguard of lies, but by a hedge of wisdom. Wisdom that tests the heart. Wisdom that reveals the wickedness of the wicked like a mirror. Our passage comes at the beginning of a cycle of several controversy narratives that begin here and go all the way until chapter 12, verse 34. And just like here, climactically, we've had uh, these atmospheric rivers lining up in the Pacific, ready to drench us one after the other. So it seems that Jesus' opponents are lining up to just come at him one after another with their best objections and defeaters. They're trying to stump him and to make him look foolish and more darkly to incriminate him. We saw the seeds of this earlier toward the beginning of the book back in chapter 3 verse 6. They started plotting how to destroy him. And even more recently verse 18 of chapter 11. Once again they began plotting how to destroy him. The scribes and chief priests. Why all this animosity? Well, let's review recent events. At the beginning of chapter 11, Jesus approached Jerusalem and its temple in a manner that intentionally fulfilled Old Testament promises about the Messiah. And there was a crowd of pilgrims traveling with him into the holy city, celebrating him as the one who comes to Zion in the name of the Lord. And then he enters, we saw in verse 11, he enters the temple, he surveys it, goes out to Uh, spend the night in an outlying village, and the next day, he comes back to clean house. People are defiling the temple. They're obstructing others from worshiping the Lord there with their crass commercial transactions in the Lord's holy place. And so he clears them out in a prophetic demonstration of judgment. So in our text, the religious leaders of the temple order approach him and engage him in controversy. Now, it's a fascinating personal interaction. We'll see it's an interesting chess game. But it's much more than that. The Bible doesn't record the story merely to pique our interest about a wise man bettering his opponents. It's here so that we can see, as all the stories in the gospel, we need to see something about Jesus. We need to see him in a certain way. And like So many of the gospel accounts, what we see here is a picture of Jesus that is a two-edged sword. On the one hand, it's drawing us near in adoration and faith. But at the same time, it's warning us about the dangers of the wrong kind of heart condition before him. And so here's the main idea. The wisdom of Christ guards the knowledge of Christ. The wisdom of Christ guards the knowledge of Christ. It's somewhat paradoxical. It's a proverb. And we'll unpack it. We'll see this proverb unfold in three parts. The first one in verses 27 and 28 is a trapping question. A trapping question. I'll read it again. And they came again to Jesus, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? So here we have the three groups of religious leaders approaching Jesus to ask him a question. Now to set the scene, in verse 27, again, Jesus is in the temple, probably the day after he cleansed it. 
And verse 17 told us that after he cleansed the temple, he was there teaching the people. It says that word teaching. He was teaching them. And later on in chapter 14, verse 49 in his trial, we'll learn that Jesus was teaching in the temple day after day. This was his daily activity while in Jerusalem. So we can be certain that what he's doing there, it just says he's in Jerusalem and walking in the temple. He's there teaching. And so these men find him doing that in verse 27. Who are they? These three groups, the scribes, the chief priests, and the elders. These are three groups of religious authority figures in the the second temple Jewish religious order of the day. And you may have heard of a ruling council called the Sanhedrin. Well, the Sanhedrin was made up of a cross-section of these three groups. These were all the groups represented in this ruling religious council in Jerusalem. Chief priests, elders, and scribes. Now, these people did not just stumble upon him and say, Hey, you're the guy that was here yesterday. What are you doing? This is an intentional probe from the power brokers. They are coming to ask him. And here's what they ask him. By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Now, in verse 28, when they say these things, they must certainly be referring to the temple cleansing of, again, probably the previous day which had caused a considerable stir. You can imagine people are still talking about it in the temple the next day. It must also include his teaching, which again occurred right alongside the temple cleansing in verse 17 and is still happening even to this moment. In both cases, he's carrying on authoritative actions. He's acting like a sort of guardian of the temple who has the right and responsibility to make sure that the right sorts of things are happening there and not the wrong sorts of things. And then, of course, in teaching, he's fulfilling a prophetic, authoritative role. Now, when someone asks a question, it's always good to consider not only the bare words they're asking, but what is the intent of asking? You see, it's not just a matter of what are the words they're saying. What is the thing that they're doing by asking this question? What is the action they're carrying out? It's like what we were to say, who do you think you are <laughs> to be doing what you're doing? There's, that's a loaded question. That's not merely a fact-finding question, is it? No, the subtext of their asking, uh, the, the action intent is to challenge his authority. They're asking to challenge his authority. Who do you think you are that you think you have authority to act like this? Mind you, these are the gatekeepers for Israel's religious order. We haven't authorized you. Why on earth do you think you have any authority apart from us? And even more than that, again, we we heard them plotting his downfall in in, uh, verse 18. So if they have any suspicion that he thinks himself to be the Christ sent by God, then they're baiting him to incriminate himself. They're trying to get him to confess something that they could use against him. It's like a chess move. They've set up their trap and now it's his turn. What will Jesus do? This brings us to the second part of our proverb here. We said the wisdom of Christ guards the knowledge of Christ. The second part we have in verses 29 to 30 is a tactical answer. A tactical answer. In response, Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Jesus' response is neither to simply answer their question nor to deny them an answer. But instead, he puts before them a counter question between them and the answer they want. 
If you answer my one little question, then I'll answer yours. And the question is, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? To say from heaven means from God. Was John sent by God? Was he acting in the authority delegated by God? And of course, speaking of his baptism, that's one thing John did, but this would represent all of John's ministry, his prophetic preaching in particular. Was John sent by God? Was he authorized by God or did he send himself? Was he an imposter? Now we might be tempted to see this question as simply another chess move, a rhetorical strategy that people use in Jesus' day. They would answer a question with another question. But if we think about it for a moment, we'll see that Asking about John is not a non sequitur. It's not irrelevant. It's not a diversion. Jesus is giving them an important clue about the answer to their question. You may recall way back, if you were here when we started in Mark, that we first met John the Baptist at the very beginning of this book when he's fulfilling prophetic predictions about a messenger who prepares the way of the Lord. In chapter 1, verse 4, we learn that he baptizes in the wilderness and he proclaims a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And as he preaches and baptizes people, it's important to see the burden of his ministry. He is pointing forward to Jesus as an eyewitness. He says in Mark 1, 7 and 8, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The very next thing that we see is Jesus coming to receive John's baptism and so to identify with sinners who need repentance and forgiveness. He himself is sinless and doesn't need those things. But at this baptism scene, something astounding happens. We read in verses 10 and 11 of Mark 1, when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So here are the important points to glean from this prehistory here with John. First of all, John was sent by God to prepare the way and point to Jesus. And secondly, Jesus was sent from heaven. He received explicit heaven-sent authorization from the voice of the Father and the Holy Spirit's coming to indwell him and empower him for ministry. Later in Mark, in the climactic moment of his revelation, Jesus will make this explicit public claim of being the Son of Man. All the way over in chapter 14, verse 62, at his trial, they'll ask him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And he answers, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. The heavenly authority of the Son of Man, given as promised back in Daniel chapter 7, an eternal kingdom over all the nations. That's what he will claim to be. At this point, Jesus isn't publicly revealing his identity because to do so would be to go immediately to the cross. It's not time for that yet. But what we see in this interaction is that Jesus is in control. When the time does come that he goes to the cross, it's not because he's overpowered as an innocent and unwilling victim. Jesus is driving the story. And he chooses at this time not to be taken. Soon he will give himself up, as he said in chapter 10, as a ransom for sinners. A willing servant, giving himself up for others. So for now, he puts this question forward for them. If they can answer truly about John, 
John who testified about Jesus, then they can figure out where Jesus' authority comes from. And this is important for all of us to know. Jesus was indeed a great man in history. He was a teacher of wisdom and righteousness. He was a man like no other, uh, full of love and compassion and courage and justice. But he's far more than that. True faith embraces him not only as a great man. The world can do that. True faith embraces him as the son of man. The heaven sent savior from God. If you're here this morning and you, you may think of Jesus merely as a great man, a great teacher, someone we can glean principles, wonderful teaching from his life, and no more than that, then you're holding an illogical and untenable position. He claims to be so much more than that, the divine human and the only savior of the world, and he lays exclusive claim on our faith and our repentance and our loyalty. The gospel here, the, the, the whole story of the gospel is driving each of us to make a decisive confession of who Jesus is. He is the son of man. He's the king of all who suffers for sinners as a lamb-like servant. May we all place our trust in him accordingly and find the riches of eternal life and forgiveness in him. I want you to notice also how Jesus dictates the terms of his revelation. These men come to him with a challenge question. He's willing to answer, but he makes a subtle authoritative move, doesn't he? He introduces a condition. He will reveal himself on his own terms, not on theirs. Some of us might wonder the same, might be wondering about whether to believe in Jesus. Can I believe in Jesus? We might lob prayers up to the sky with conditions. I'll believe in you if you just... If you'll, only, if, you'll, if you'll show me something you haven't shown me yet, if you'll do something uh, amazing and crazy, I just, I just can't deny that it's you. Or if you'll meet this need of mine, then I'll believe in you. And we introduce our condition. That simply won't do. Jesus does not receive this kind of approach. He is full of mercy. He's tenderhearted toward the weak and the struggling. Remember back in chapter 9, this struggling, distressed dad who cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. He, Jesus is merciful to that kind of approach, but he's still a king. He reveals himself on his terms at his own good pleasure, and it's our job to make good on that revelation rather than folding our arms and demanding more. The childlike faith that he commended, not only commended, insisted on back in chapter 10, verses 13 to 16. Unless someone comes to me like a child, they won't enter the kingdom of heaven. That childlike faith is one of open-handed receiving. It's not what these men are doing. Before we go on and examine the leader's response to Jesus, take note of how rich in wisdom he is. He's able to deftly navigate these troubled waters of persecution and entrapment. The Bible elsewhere calls Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians 1.30 the wisdom of God. In Colossians 2.3, he's the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's fruitful for us both to stir up our admiration for Christ as the incarnate treasury of all God's wisdom. And also to instruct us as we imitate his wisdom. To take a close look and understand what he's doing here. There's two Proverbs that paradoxically lie side by side in our book of Proverbs. Chapter 26, verses 4 and 5. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Very next verse. 
Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. How does Jesus not answer these fools according to their folly? Well, he doesn't allow himself to be sucked into their game. He doesn't allow himself to submit to their rules. Lest you be like him yourself. He doesn't do that. Oftentimes, foolish people who don't fear the Lord, they're thinking in certain patterns and expecting certain things of us and making certain assumptions. They expect us to share with them. And we simply don't owe them compliance with that. We don't owe them agreement. We don't have to play by those rules. Jesus never moves onto their turf. He clearly fears the Lord and not man. On the other hand, how does he answer them according to their folly? Well, he answers in a way that is well adapted to their folly. He answers in a way that takes their folly into account and responds appropriately to it. And as we'll see, in a way that exposes the dishonesty of their hearts. Oh, come let us adore him. The treasury of all divine wisdom and knowledge. The the gospel accounts are dripping with the sweet honey of Christ's wisdom. He's full of insight and discretion and discernment and understanding. He's the word of God, the reasoning of God made flesh so that we can see him and know him. For those of us who follow him in faith, his disciples, may we study his life and gain wisdom. It's fruitful to read the wisdom literature in the Old Testament on the one hand and then go to the Gospels and see these things playing out in living color in the life of Jesus. As he declared about himself in Matthew 12, 42, something greater than Solomon is here. During Israel's history under its kings, the sons of David often took their treasures of gold and silver and beat them into shields to decorate their halls and to display their might. Well, here the greatest son of David has taken his treasures of wisdom and knowledge and forged them into a defensive shield against the attack of his enemies. In the third part of our text, we'll see how he turns their weapons of war against them. This brings us to, just as Psalm 915 says of the king's enemies, in the net that they hid, let their own, their own foot has been caught. That's what will happen in the third part. We'll call this a tragic outcome. Verses 31 to 33. A tragic outcome. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? For they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus' question gets his opponents conferring among themselves. We need to notice one very important fact. In all of their deliberations, they give not a shred of thought to the question of what is true. Was was John sent by God or was he a self-appointed imposter? They're not thinking about what the truth is. They're only thinking through a decision tree of what outcome they might expect from each answer that they could give. And the decision tree starts with, well, what if we say he's from heaven? Verse 31. What would that lead to? That would be an easy slam dunk for Jesus because these established leaders rejected John. John was offering a method for cleansing and forgiveness that bypassed their temple-based structures. So now if they say that he's the God-sent prophet, they would be giving Jesus an easy rope to hang them. He'd be able to call out their inconsistency saying, Well, now you say he's from God. Back then you sure didn't think so. You rejected him. 
Okay, then what about the other side of the decision tree? What if we say from man? Well, in verse 32, they don't even allow themselves to finish playing out that scenario because the surrounding crowd loved John. They believed in him. Many of them had certainly received his baptism. If these leaders stood here and claimed that he was an illegitimate prophet, a self-appointed charlatan, they would be committing at least political suicide, maybe even worse, maybe stirring up mob anger against them. So the only thing they can safely do is conclude saying, we don't know, plead ignorance. Now sometimes it is wise and good to claim ignorance. It's an honest admission for the intellectually humble and honest to come up against the limits of our knowledge and to say, I don't know. Proverbs 26.12, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Admit when you don't know something. Proverbs 18.2, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. It's okay to not know things. Are these men making a rare and refreshing display of true wisdom by saying that they don't know? Are they modestly admitting the limits of their knowledge? No. Some claims of ignorance are noble and virtuous, but this we don't know is rotten through with vice. In fact, the vice that they're committing is called intellectual insouciance. It's a fancy word. Intellectual insouciance. Insouciance just means casual disregard. They are casually disregarding the matter of what is actually true. For the intellectually insouciant person, words are merely tools for bringing about desired effects. It's not even necessarily lying. Because as bad as lying is, lying at least respects the truth enough to recognize it, even if only to divert others away from it. In some ways, this is even more sinister. This is not even giving thought to what's true. And this vice plagues much of the political and social media discourse of our day. There are many, many words spilled over controversial issues, not for their truthfulness, not because the speaker even cares whether they're true, but merely for their effect. They're instruments for gaining power and advantage over others, or in their case, for keeping themselves safe. People who fall into this error are playing games with their words in order to bring about their desired ends. And, and by showing us the reasoning process that led these leaders to their conclusion, Mark shows us that this is in fact what's happening in their hearts. And here we learn a warning that applies to all of us. Jesus reveals himself to earnest inquiry, but conceals himself from hard-hearted wickedness. He conceals himself from treacherous, deceitful hearts. And we heard this way back in chapter 4 and echoing through this gospel many times. Jesus disclosed the secrets of his kingdom to his disciples because for all their misunderstandings and slowness and sin, they were on board with him. There was a humility there. There was a, an attentiveness and a willingness to listen. They made missteps, but they wanted to learn from him. And over time, he did reveal himself to them more and more. You see, in the fullness of wisdom and discernment, Jesus is laying down this question like a heart filter to test these people, to, to, to sift out the spiritual and moral state of his challengers. And by their response, they show that they're caught in the filter. They're not honest-hearted men of childlike faith, simply coming to Jesus with open hand to receive his revelation. They're too diplomatic and strategic and calculating and intellectually insouciant to approach him that way. 
And so he won't reveal anything of himself to them. He, he swings the door shut. He says, neither will I tell you. And so today, there are all sorts of ways that we might disqualify ourselves from the knowledge of Jesus because we are not inquiring with an honest heart. Yesterday, I did some cooking in the kitchen, and believe it or not, I generated a little bit of smoke. Um, there was no fire. I didn't burn the food, but when Dad cooks, sometimes the house smokes up a little bit. And so I did what I usually do. I, I began opening doors and windows to vent things out, and a few minutes later, I was dismayed to find that it didn't really look any clearer. The, the room still looked hazy. So I waited a few more minutes, and still, hardly any change. Finally, I, I noticed my glasses lenses were cloudy, because earlier I had, I had wiped them quickly with a t-shirt, and I, I, I lowered my lenses, my glasses to look over the lenses. Immediately, I could see the room was clear. The room wasn't smoky at all. It was just my glasses that gave me the perception of ongoing haziness. And this is the thing with perception. On our own, we, can see, we, we, we think we are seeing clearly. We always think we're seeing clearly. This is sense perception. It tells us it's working right, and it often is, but what if it isn't? Many people approach Jesus and his word in Scripture thinking themselves to be objective and trustworthy in their perceptions, but in reality, there is a skepticism at play. There's motivated reasoning, which deep inside really does not want to find Jesus to be who he really is. So you may find moral problems and objections in the Bible. Or you may find objections to its historical trustworthiness. Or you may find ways to subtly divert and reinterpret what Jesus is saying because you don't really want him to be who he is and, and to be saying what he's saying. All because as much as we might claim to be facing Jesus objectively and to really think we are, in truth we're being like these opponents, fundamentally dishonest. We're asking some question other than what's really true about Jesus. What's really true about Jesus? Do we read the Gospels and try to gain knowledge of Jesus for the sake of truly knowing him in order to trust him and revere him? Or for the sake of some other agenda we bring from the outside? Do we want the truth of Jesus to embrace it and to know it, whatever it might cost us personally, or are we just trying to fit him into our own self-interests? The Bible tells us that when we behold Jesus Christ by faith, we see the glory of God shining in his face. But in order for us personally to experience this, the Gospels insist on at least two conditions of our hearts. The first condition is in, in Luke's version of the parable of the sower and the soils, when Jesus is describing the fourth soil, you know, the healthy one that bears fruit, he says this represents those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart. An honest and good heart. That honesty of heart is exactly what these men lack. It's a worthwhile exercise when we're about to hear or read God's word. To ask ourselves, and prayerfully God asks, ask God to search us, what do I want to be true? And how might that affect my ability to see what's actually there? Am I committed to going where the text of Scripture leads? Even if it costs me something. Even if I have to change my mind. Even if I have to repent of something or other costs. And one crucial mechanism to guard the honesty of our hearts is by hearing the word of God together in community as the people of God. 
No individual is a perfect interpreter of scripture, and nor is any local church a perfect interpreter of scripture. But the collective accountability is unbeatable, especially when we're reading the Bible attentive to broader patterns of interpretation, both uh, in other places besides us and other eras of church history. We are reading the Bible and we're hearing Christ together. We're lovingly committed to leading each other mutually according to the truth of his word. Just how vulnerable are each of us alone reading and interpreting the, the scriptures, seeking to live them out? It's a disaster. The second heart condition the Gospels insist upon us in order to see the glory of God in Christ is purity. Matthew 5, 8, one of Jesus' Beatitudes. He entices us to discipleship with his promise. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The pure in heart see God. But impurity of any sort clouds our vision, like like my glasses when I was cooking. This goes for those outside of Christ, looking, as it were, from the outside in through a window, wondering how to approach him. This also goes for those of us who follow him. With what condition of heart do we approach him in his words? And by experience, especially if you've been walking with Christ for some time, we know the experience of having our eyes clouded from seeing his glory, even in the the clear preaching or reading of his word, because our hearts were set on something else. There was impurity clouding our vision. Just very practically, Matthew 5.8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This forms one of my frequent go-to prayers for illumination. Whenever I'm coming face-to-face with Scripture. This is what I so desperately need. Lord, give me the purity of heart by which to see you. I am so prone to errors and distortions. Very practically, brothers and sisters, we can have this prayer on our lips as we gather together to worship the Lord and as we encounter His Word scattered throughout the week. We need purity of heart. We need honesty of heart. We've now seen how the wisdom of Christ guards the knowledge of Christ. Christ is heaven's treasure chest of righteousness and redemption and wisdom. To know him, to see him with clear-eyed faith is to have life and joy eternal. Revelation of Jesus Christ is the highest prize. But he doesn't give that prize out to everybody in every state. On the one hand, he's called his church to preach the gospel to everyone indiscriminately. But on the other hand, Jesus only allows himself to be seen under certain heart circumstances. And it is his great wisdom to hide himself from the wise of this world and to reveal himself to the childlike, those of honest-hearted faith. Is the treasure chest of wisdom open or closed to you? What's the state of your heart? If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want to ask you, will you receive the news of the gospel, the announcement both of your sin and your condemnation before your creator, but also of Jesus Christ coming into the world to save sinners who believe through his death and resurrection? Will you hear this news, face the hard reality of your sin and accountability and the exclusive claim of Christ as the only Savior? Will you look at that with humility? We look at that recognizing the, the, the danger of twisting the message. If so, you'll be driven to the conclusion that you need his mercy. You'll be driven to his cross. You'll find that mercy abundantly by faith in the outpouring of sacrificial love that he displays there. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
May the Lord by his life-giving spirit ever safeguard in us that purity of heart by which alone we can see his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we praise you for the riches of wisdom and knowledge that are in Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. We thank you for the gospels where we can see him living and speaking and reacting and displaying the the treasures of your wisdom, putting flesh on them. We so need your spirit to work in our hearts to give us that purity of heart and that honesty of heart by which your word can work on us rightly. And we don't distort it, we don't twist it. We need you to work. Give us that childlike faith that receives with an open hand. And we pray that we would indeed continue to see and to marvel at the glory of Jesus Christ, both in his heavenly authority as the Son of Man and as the one filled with your wisdom. Work in us through your word this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.